This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button portion stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Welcome, everyone, to Evidence for Faith, the Christian Worldview and Evidences radio program. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hello, I'm Kirk Hastings. Check us out at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com, where we've got podcasts. You can listen to our previous shows. Today, Kirk, we're going to be talking about critical thinking skills, something we've been talking about for the last several weeks, but we'll be looking today at logical fallacies. Why are we doing this? Because of a study that showed that even college students are doing very poorly in this area, critical thinking skills. Even after four years of higher education, they still, many of them, more than a third of them, come out after four years with no change, no development, no improvement in their critical thinking skills. So this is very important in the kind of questions that we talk about on this show. Is Christianity true? Is atheism true? So it's important to be able to think clearly when you're discussing these very important topics. Well, before we get into the topic today, there's a couple news items. Kirk, I thought you'd find this interesting. There was a study at the London School of Medicine that looked at the difference between religious concepts that doctors have and their medical practices. So this was very interesting. It turns out, according to this study, that atheist and agnostic doctors are twice as likely to make decisions that will shorten the life of terminally ill patients. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. Not so good if you're terminally ill. So does that mean the first question you should ask your doctor is, are you a Christian or not? (laughs) It sounds like it might make a difference. (laughs) One of the other interesting things that the study found was that Doctors that are in the field of palliative care, which is where they work to reduce pain in patients, that they're significantly much more likely to be Christians than other doctors. Other doctors don't go into the field of palliative care. Wow. Interesting. So that, yeah, that was, that was a pretty interesting study. Huh. We've talked in the past about the topic of devolution, how a lot of the genetic changes that we see happening between species is actually a loss of genetic information, devolution, and not any kind of increase in information that you might say would be a positive form of evolution, but actually negative evolution going on or devolution. Right. Almost like evolution going backwards. Exactly right. So here's a couple of studies. These are both from a website called Physorg.com. It's a science, physics, and technical and nanotechnology news. And one of theirs, this is dated February 6th, showed that human brains have shrunk. So the average size of modern humans, those included in this with the species name Homo sapiens, has decreased about 10% during the time period that modern humans have existed going from the brain size has gone from 1,500 cubic centimeters to 1,359. So that's a mass of about the size of a tennis ball that 
humans have, their brains have been shrinking. I've heard that in the past, even from evolutionists, that they admit that. Yeah. That and the, we, early, uh, the early Cro-Magnon man and the Neanderthal man actually had larger brains than we do today. That's right. That's right. And this, this study is more evidence of that. The study says that women's brains, which are smaller on average than those of men, have experienced an equivalent drop in size, and that these measurements were taken using skulls found in Europe, the Middle East, and Asia, so basically all around the world. So does they that mean quote, we're getting dumber? <laughs> that's what it appears. They quote John Hawkes of the University of Michigan. He says, I'd call that a major downsizing in an evolutionary eye blink. So major yeah. changes over a short period of time. Then for historical information, they mentioned that the Neanderthal was far more massive physically and had a larger brain. And Cro-Magnons, which is, they, Cro-Magnons fit into the genus Homo sapiens, were the Homo sapiens with the largest brains. They were also stronger than modern descendants. So not only have human brains been shrinking, but we've been getting weaker over time. Huh, interesting. Yeah. Now, they, can I ask a question here? Does, sure. Does a smaller brain necessarily mean less intelligence, or are the two uh, factors not directly connected? It, there doesn't seem to be a clear answer to that. Certainly from what we know about the differences between men and women, men and women have similar average IQs. Right. Also, I think there have been some studies on small people. You know, there have been historically at times some very small people who you know very small body sizes including small heads right and those people have been studied and don't seem to have any any difference okay so that is of concern absolutely it's of concern as to whether people will be losing iq and and there is actually in a, in the field of those who study iqs there is great concern that the average iq of human beings is declining yeah, so I've, I've heard uh, I've heard rumors to that effect also that uh, uh, school college testings and stuff the the average um, grade levels are going down or the results are going down or whatever. Yes, and and those kinds of school tests that are equivalent to <clears throat> IQ tests. Right. So obviously it could indicate less knowledge, but many of the tests that graduates take, high school graduates take to get into college are actually IQ tests. So those do show a decline in IQ over time. Huh, interesting. There's a, let's see, they go on this, the more details about this. They quote from psychology professor David Geary of the University of Missouri, who studied the evolution of the skull sizes. Geary and his colleagues found that brain size decreased as population density increased. So they quote him as saying, as complex societies emerged, the brain became smaller because people did not have to be as smart to stay alive. So he does <laughs> indicate that people are getting dumber. <laughs> That's like the Jim Carrey movie, Dumb and Dumber, huh? Yep. <laughs> then they say Brian Hare, an assistant professor of anthropology at Duke University, noted that the same phenomena can be observed in domestic animals compared to their wild counterparts. I think you remember when we discussed on this show how all of the dog breeds that we know about had been traced genetically back to the Middle Eastern wolf. Right. This indicates that the wolf has a much larger brain than dogs, including 
Huskies, which are apparently the most similar to wolves, Huskies also have smaller brains than wolves. Huh. So pretty interesting. Both humans and dogs appear to be devolving and not evolving. Interesting. Then there was another one. This one was posted February 9th. This is another news item from physorg.com. And they talk about some worms that were discovered to have devolved. These are simple marine worms. It's actually possible for a worm to get less complex. <laughs> yep, that's exactly right. And the names of this worms are Xenoturbella and Axioelamorpha. Those two worms, these were published online in Nature. Scientists said that they show that both groups descended from the same ancestor. This implies that the worms have, in fact, evolved backwards into a much simpler-looking organism. It says scientists compared hundreds of genes from both Xenoturbella and the Axiolomorpha with their counterparts from a whole range of animal species to determine their evolutionary relationships. <laughs> Professor Max Telford said the simple worms must have lost a lot of the complexity that they originally possessed. There's more evidence that what we actually see, the genetic changes that we actually see are devolution, loss of genetic information. <laughs> wow. Good, strong evidence for the Christian worldview. Here's another one. This one was from Science Daily. This is pretty interesting. You know, Kirk, we've talked about examples in the past where there have been fossils found with organic material that has not fossilized. Okay. Now, this is really odd because organic material ought to have fossilized. The fossilization process, silica molecules actually transpose themselves in place of carbon molecules, and the item that's being fossilized actually turns into rock. Right. This is a basically an unstoppable process. There's no way that this is not going to happen if the fossil is old enough. And it only takes a few thousand years for this process to begin and finish. Right. Yet it turns out that more and more fossils are being discovered that have organic material still in them. We've mentioned blood clots and blood vessels, red blood cells, the carbon-based coloration from feathers, the ink from squids, and various other items that we've talked about on the show that have been discovered in supposedly millions of years old rock that should have long ago decayed away, broken down, and been replaced by silica molecules. So, so we're, not, a, we're not talking about a fossil impression of these things. We're talking about the actual original organic material itself is still there. Is that Correct. right? That's right. So when they break open the fossil, for instance, in the case of the Tyrannosaurus rex bone, they broke it because they needed to, to transport it on a helicopter, and it, it simply weighed too much. So they broke it open, and out, out fell a glob, a big blood clot. <laughs> wow. So soft material, non-fossilized material. Gee, is that so, what, the, uh, what the Tyrannosaurus rex died of? He didn't get to the emergency room fast enough? <laughs> <laughs> No, he got buried in limestone in a water-laden, flood-based rock layer. So buried in a flood. Now the, now, the people that found this, how did they, I assume they're evolutionists that found this, how did they explain that? They explain the, the same way that the 
Have you heard about the patient who thought he was dead? No. <laughs> well, there's a patient who thought he was dead. So his wife took him to a doctor and said, Doctor, I just don't want to know what to do with my husband. He thinks he's dead. <laughs> so the doctor says, I'll take care of it. Here's what we'll do. We're going to prove to him that dead people don't bleed. So he takes them down to the morgue and they stick pins in dead bodies for a few hours until the guy's completely convinced that dead people don't bleed. Right. <laughs> so then the doctor turns, grabs the guy's hand and jabs a needle into his fingertip and squeezes the blood out and he says, see, you're not dead. And the guy looks at it for a few minutes and he says, well, I'll be darned. I guess dead people do bleed after all. <laughs> So that's how they answer it. They say, well, yes, it's true that we've always said that it only takes a couple thousand years for fossils to occur. And here's a 75 million supposedly year old blood clot that hasn't decayed away, hasn't been changed into a fossil. I guess it's true that they can last that long. But we don't know why. But we don't know why. It's like yep. evolution in general. We know that it happens, but we don't know exactly how or why. <laughs> well, they have they have their theory of how it happens. It just it just turns out that every time we look for evidence, it's not there. <laughs> Same thing with the DNA finds. How can you find a complex molecule like DNA that is so complex and the bonds, the chemical bonds that hold it together are so weak? that outside of a living organism where there are all kinds of molecular machines hovering around, repairing it constantly, how is it possible that you can find any DNA outside of a living cell? Well, the truth is that things like cysticine have half-lives of only a couple hundred years. So in 200 years, all the cysticine molecules in DNA would be broken down. Right. Same with the other parts of the DNA structure. And three, 200 years later, or 300 years later, depending on the molecule, another half are gone, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So that after, studies have shown that after about 10,000 years, you won't have any DNA molecules left at all. Okay. Guess what? Scientists still claim that they can, they're pulling DNA out of things like insects that are, have been trapped in amber. Yet all those molecules would have long ago decayed away. So anyways, back to this news item from Science Daily. It shows that the shell of insects, okay, the outside exoskeleton, right. which is called a chitin protein complex, has been discovered in incredibly old rock layers. Now, they've known about it for rocks in, that are 25 million years old. And they've also known about it in rocks that were 80 million years old. But again, this process continues on. So if, e even if there were microscopic amounts left in rocks that are that old, there still shouldn't be rocks. There shouldn't be any more in rocks older than that. This study, it says, surprising new research shows that contrary to conventional belief, remains of chitin protein complex structural materials containing protein, and polysaccharides, so sugars and proteins, are present in abundance in fossils of arthropods from the Paleozoic era. So they found them in rock layers that are supposedly 310 and even one that was 417 million years old. Is that a fact? <laughs> Incredible that proteins which fall apart on their own 
given enough time, even if they weren't replaced by the incredibly aggressive fossilization processes that are in rocks, still, in ideal circumstances, they would still fall apart by 10,000 years. Sure. Yet they exist at 417 million years later. Now, the interesting one, another one of the interesting things is that there doesn't seem to be any difference in the amount of material remaining at any of these levels. The 25 million year level, the 80 million year level, the 310 million year level, or the 417 million year level, all those rocks contain the same proportion of this protein and polysaccharide material. Well, scientifically, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Not unless those rock layers are all from the same age. Right. There's something wrong with their dating uh, process there. So it appears. All right. Well, those that's our news items for today, unless you have any. No, it's been a dry week for me. <laughs> All right. We did get another letter from our friend Yusi, the atheist from Scandinavia. Okay. The letters are getting a little long now because he and I have been interspersing our answers to each other. So this is about four pages now, which I'm definitely not going to read on air. <laughs> but I do want to read a couple of paragraphs because I thought they would be interesting for the general listener. Okay. He says, you didn't answer my question about why I feel that God did wrong. And what he's referring to is he had previously said that he feels it's wrong that he should suffer in a painful world just because of Adam's mistake. So Adam brought sin into the world, and he thinks it's wrong, morally wrong of God, to punish him. Okay. So my answer is that the reason is because you don't recognize your own guilt. You feel you're being punished wrong because you don't recognize your own guilt. If you did, you wouldn't wonder why you're suffering. You'd wonder, how come you're still alive? (laughs) Then he says, if the instinct of right and wrong is from God, then how come it is not the same with everyone? That's a very good question. So Christians say that conscience, that your conscience comes from God, tells you what's wrong, right and wrong. How come people then disagree about what is right and wrong? Okay. So my answer is that because we're, we're broken, that we don't follow our conscience and we suppress it. So some people would even say they don't have a conscience because they've made every effort to suppress it, and it no longer works. Right. And then I referred to him to the book of Romans for an explanation. He goes on to say, who is is right and who is wrong? Can't God decide, thinking that it's God who is causing these differences in in the consciences of the people? Right. So my answer is that God is right, and we are usually wrong. He doesn't force us to behave, but one day we will face judgment and either receive justice or mercy. It's your choice. I choose mercy. Good answer. Then he further down towards the end, in fact, at the very end, he's talking, we're back to the cosmological argument, and he says, you just keep on repeating that God is self-existent, but you don't even try to explain how we are supposed to know that. I think you can't explain it, and you know it, and that's why you don't answer me. You cannot say you don't know because you couldn't use the Kalam argument anymore. Okay, and again, that's a good that's a good point. It's just one that I didn't realize he was missing, that he didn't understand how it was that God could be self-existent. So I answered and said, 
Sorry, these philosophical arguments go all the way back to Aristotle and have been discussed ever since, so I was under, unaware of what you were missing in the argument. We know that God is self-existent because something must be for anything to exist at all. So something has to be self-existence if, if anything exists at all. Aristotle showed that cause and effect cannot extend into the past forever. Right. And this has been agreed upon by almost every philosopher down through the ages. That's why you hear the term infinite regression used to prove that something is false. So when somebody, if you give an argument and someone says, oh, that can't be true, that's an infinite regression, that's used because we all know that there cannot be any such thing as an infinite regression. Okay. So there are only, and an infinite regression would be something like, if something exists, it has a cause, then that cause has a prior cause, that cause has a prior cause. So in if there's only nature and cause and effect, eventually you create an infinite regression because you're just going back to a prior cause, and that can't be possible. Right. Isn't that kind of a logical contradiction, too? I mean, you can't, you have to eventually get back to a starting point. Yes, that's right. That's the point. There's no such thing as an infinite regression. And according so, to the Christian point of view, the starting point is God, which is himself is an uncaused cause and is that's right. the cause of all other causes. <laughs> that's right. What Aristotle called the prime mover, right. the first cause. Right. There ha you have to get back to a first cause. Right. Otherwise, what you're saying turns out to be irrational. So I said there's, there are only two reasons that anything can exist. Either it's caused by something else or it is self-existent. Right. The self-existent cause of the universe is what we call God. Okay. So that is our latest letter from UC. Now, that's interesting that a lot of times atheists, when you bring up this idea of God not having a beginning— they'll come back at you and say, well, that doesn't make any sense, but then they'll try to argue that they believe that the universe has existed forever. Yes, that's right. So they're really contradicting themselves. They're, they're saying, well, God couldn't have existed forever, but we're saying the universe did. Exactly right. So, they, yeah, they've got, uh, they're, they're definitely playing both sides of the fence on that one. Right. So if one is possible, then the other one must be possible, too. Of course, the universe isn't isn't infinite. We've a number of, of scientists, including Einstein and some of the real, you know, biggies, have proved that, that the universe had to have had a starting point at some point in the past. That's right. But, you know, so, if, if they yeah, can so believe something that, outside of nature had to cause nature. Right. Something outside of space and time. But so, it doesn't really make any sense to say, well, I believe the universe existed forever, and then turn around and say, well, you're telling me that God existed forever. That's not possible. <laughs> yeah, because the universe isn't the kind of thing that is necessarily needs to be there. So you can imagine different philosophical examples of a world, using world in the philosophical definition, that where nothing exists. So there is no universe, and why isn't that possible? Well, if the universe was self-existing, there would have to be some reason why it would have to exist in every possible world. And since it doesn't exist in every possible world, we know that it's not self-existent. Right. And you can also go in a different direction and start talking about how the universe is a physical thing, and all physical things have a starting point, whereas exactly. God is not physical, he's a spirit, which right. is how Outside he is able to be self-existent. 
outside of the physical universe, outside of space, outside of time. Right, and that's a partial explanation for why he doesn't have a cause, because he's not physical. That's right. Any any explanation for nature has to be out found outside of nature. So right. in a sense, it has to be supernatural. Right. Uh, otherwise, uh, you you wind up doing the, one of these infinite regressions. Uh, an example might be, uh, let's say if you're looking for uh, your cause. Okay. Well, you could say, well, my parents are my cause. Right. All right. Well, what if I don't like that answer? What if I want to be the cause? So I'm going to look for an a reason that I exist that proves that I am my parents' parents, okay? I caused my parents. <laughs> am I ever going to find any such evidence? Uh, I don't think so. Nope, I It never sounds will. like you're a candidate for a rubber room. <laughs> exactly right. And that's the same kind of situation that somebody who's looking for a natural explanation for nature is in. It's like you're looking to say that I am the cause of my own parents. Or you're trying to say that nature caused nature. Exactly. Which doesn't make any sense. (laughs) That's right. That's right. All right. Well, enough uh, of that line of reasoning for for a while. (laughs) If you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. Let's jump into our topic for the day. Kirk, why don't you start the ball off with our logical fallacies. Okay. We're going to look at logical fallacies and why we need to know them. Why do we need to know them? So you don't make those mistakes. Right. And so you can spot them when other people do make them. Okay. Well, the first one we're going to talk about is inductive fallacies. Yes. And another way to say this would be a hasty generalization. Yep, or hasty a, generalization. An example of an inductive fallacy. Or a conclusion based on too little data. Right. In other right. words, you're making a conclusion based on partial knowledge of your subject and not total knowledge, I guess. Exactly. Like a hasty generalization would be all swans are white. Right. We talked about that last week. That's right. So maybe you don't realize that your data is too little to support your generalization, but it turns out that it's, it is. The data is too little. We talked so about hasty- the fact that in Australia there are black swans, right? Right, right. So hasty generalizations, people make hasty generalizations all the time, and these are, these really, they, they do it because it helps their argument, right. but it's really logically unsound to do this. So an example would be, wars are the result of religion. Right. Anybody ever heard that one before? Oh, sure. So people might have heard of something like the Crusades, okay? Right. Or maybe they've heard about the Irish wars, between Catholics and Protestants. Right. So they jump, with that little bit of data, they jump to the conclusion that wars are the result of religion. Or even that, even if they modify that generalization and say most wars are the results of religion. Right. And of course, there's a lot of people saying this today because of what's going on in the world with Islam. There, yes. More and more people are saying, you know, look at this. this these different religions in the world are what's causing all these wars. Yep, and Islam, if you, if you break down the group of wars that have been started by religions, Islam is at the top of the list. National Geographic had a great website. I, they've taken it down because I, I looked for it to print it out, but they used to have a map of all the world's wars really? that were currently going on, and they, they showed a map of the world, and they had these little icons of little flames. Right. <laughs> and... 
So the, the, each flame represented a separate individual war. And they said that at the current time, this was a couple of years ago when I saw this map, they said that there were about 50 wars going on at any, you know, any one location around the world. I was going to say, that map must look like a bonfire. <laughs> yeah, they were all over. Well, I tell you what, it, it was interesting because you couldn't see any pattern to it. You know, there were, they were throughout Africa, Asia, Middle East, and there didn't seem to be any discernible pattern as to where. But then they right. had one button where you could overlay Muslim-dominated countries. And if you press that button, they overlaid where countries were that were dominated by Muslims. And guess where then all of the flame icons made sense now? <laughs> they were all on the borders, or almost all of them were on the borders between Muslim countries and non-Muslim countries. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. And you say they've since taken this website down, huh? They have, yeah, unfortunately. I would have loved to have gotten a printout of it. They probably decided that this wasn't helping the cause of diversity in the world. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. So, um, now... Well, what probably some Muslim organization complained about it. It could be. could be. What's the truth about wars of religion? Well, there's an encyclopedia of wars that lists every known war, every historical war that we have any knowledge of. So as you can imagine, it's quite extensive. I'll bet. And they categorize the different causes of these wars, and they have a category of religious wars. So what percent do you think of the wars that have been fought in history, how many of them are categorized as religious wars? Hmm. I don't know, but just guessing off the top of my head, I would say maybe 20-30%. Okay, 8%. 8%? 8%, yep. And that includes all of the Muslim wars. No kidding. Yep. Well, my wife is an elementary school teacher, and she often tells me that when she's teaching her students about the different wars in history, she said that the one common denominator in almost every war is... Um, somebody trying to acquire land is oh, yeah. what causes wars. Oh, yeah, that makes wars. a lot of sense. Yep. Yeah, so, almost... so what they're fighting over is land. Right. They, some tribe or some group wants to move into a, an area that's occupied by other people right. or they want to expand their reach, their control. Yep. So they want that property that other people are living in. So that could be the other 92%. <laughs> How about more examples of hasty generalization? Okay, here's one I hear a lot. I used to go to church, but I stopped going there because everyone was so unfriendly. Right, right. Yeah, really, everyone <laughs> was so unfriendly. Right. So all Christians are unfriendly. Everybody in every church in the country is unfriendly, so I'm not going there anymore. <laughs> right. Now, have you so, tried every church? Well, <laughs> no. <laughs> right. So what happens, what really happens is that somebody new goes to a church and the people who are used to seeing all their friends and buddies are shaking hands and saying hi to all their friends and they don't notice the new person. Mm -hmm. So the new person feels, you know, shunned and whatever and they decide, hey, you know what, I'm not coming back here anymore. Right. Well, how about... Well, how about that could be a good I reason for not going back to that particular church, but that's not a good reason for not trying the one down the street that might be different. Well, and you know what? I don't even think that's a good reason for not going to that particular church. I talked to, we have a great youth leader at our church called uh, Steve White, 
and he came to Victory Bible Church and felt totally shunned, but he felt that uh, God had really called him there, and he kept coming, and sure enough, uh, people got to know him, and, uh, you know, he's a great favorite with everyone now, uh-huh. so a lot of times your first impressions are wrong. Yeah, I can see that. Well, here's one that we hear sometimes, another hasty generalization. If you're not a Christian, you have no reason for being good. Okay, that's a hasty generalization that a Christian might make. Okay. And that, again, is, is wrong. It's just not enough data. You're, you're generalizing from too little information, right? You may know atheists who don't have a good reason for being good or, you know, who are involved in very bad behavior, but that doesn't mean that they have no reason for being good if you're not right. a Christian. Some They're atheists are very nice moral people. Exactly. Yep. Not uh, necessarily for the same reason that a Christian is moral, but they have a set of standards that they try to stick to. Right. And Now, my belief is that most of those are borrowed from the Christian community that they live in, such as a tolerance and other Christian virtues, that they borrow those and they use those because they know they're good and they help them through life. Sure. So, um, but that's still, that's a hasty generalization and we shouldn't make it as Christians. Right. Uh, so, all right. Well, that's, uh, I think that's enough on hasty generalization. How about slothful induction? Ooh, this is a good one. That sounds like a nasty one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't be a slothful inductor. <laughs> now, this goes back to that friend that I mentioned a couple of weeks back who was a philosophy student, and he and I used to discuss philosophy over coffee in the evenings, and we talked for hours. And what slothful induction is, is not arriving at a warranted conclusion, right? He was the guy that I told you about that wouldn't make any decision as to whether one philosophical view was better than another. Right. So even though there were all kinds of arguments and we would discuss them and he'd agree with the arguments, he still wouldn't make a decision. Right. So this is fairly common. People will not come to a conclusion. For instance, they will hear all the arguments, all the very strong philosophical arguments that God exists. Right. And it's fully warranted that they ought to believe that God exists and they won't do it. Right. They They won't step over that line. Right. That's right. So now, I can assume that from the word slothful, we're talking about people who are basically just intellectually lazy? Well, the, the result is that they're being intellectually lazy, but it might, they might be not arriving at a conclusion for other reasons. Okay. For instance, if they realize that God does exist, then, then their mind has already, already raced ahead, and they've said, oh, well, gee, that means Christianity is true, and now I have to stop living with my girlfriend. Okay. So maybe they don't want to arrive at a warranted conclusion because they don't want to stop living with their girlfriend. Right. But it's still slothful induction. It is a a fallacy. It's a logical fallacy. If you have warrant to come to a conclusion, you ought to logically, you must come to that conclusion. Right. When you see the undeniable evidences that God exists, you must come to that conclusion or you're being irrational. Gotcha. Okay. Well, here's a, how about we go to another fallacy here. How right. about the non sequitur? Good. Tell me about it. Now, we've, I think almost everybody's heard of that. Yes. That means something that just does not follow, something that's okay. really kind of nuts. <laughs> right. Doesn't follow logically. Sure. Like, yeah, uh, no, there, 
there's a good example of this. I've heard a couple podcasts where people have interviewed or asked questions of Richard Dawkins. Right. And the famous and evolutionist. Heard, yeah, an evolutionist, atheist. Right. They asked him, why do you never address the biological evidences that Michael Behe has developed in his research and has published? Okay. And you know what his answer was? Tell me. <laughs> Michael Behe believes in God. Okay. That's his answer. That's his reason. <laughs> <laughs> so that's an obvious non sequitur. So the non sequitur is that he's Dawkins is assuming because Michael B believes in God, nothing he says can be the truth. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And that obviously doesn't follow. It does not follow. <laughs> yes, the research that it could be true that God doesn't exist, but that doesn't mean that Michael Behe's research isn't true. Right. So. Well, according to that definition, there's an awful lot of that going on today. Oh, non-sequiturs happen all the time. So Th That's so like the people that will say, well, he's a creationist, therefore I'm not going to believe anything he says. Precisely. Or he's an evolutionist, I'm not going to believe anything he says. That's you right. You go either way with it. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. You have to look and see, does cause, does this effect match up with this cause? Right. You have to look for cause and effect. Each each argument has to be examined on its own basis, not on some other basis. How about the red herring? Now, this is sort of related. <laughs> a red herring is when you're in a discussion with somebody and they bring up an irrelevant point. Now, it can be a point that Sounds like it's relevant, okay? And the person might even actually think it is relevant, but it turns out that it's not relevant. Or they could be deliberately bringing up an irrelevant point because they want to distract you. Right. Or they think that this helps their argument in some way. Maybe it, they don't like the way the argument's going and they're, they're losing by discussing the thing that they're talking about. Right. So they want to throw in something that they think they have a stronger foothold on. So they'll bring up a red herring. They'll bring up just some irrelevant point. Since I'm not winning this argument, I'm just going to change the argument. <laughs> That's precisely right. Now, again, they might be doing that deliberately or they might be just doing it accidentally. They might be thinking that, yeah, it is related, but it turns out it's not really related at all. Right. So, so this is why it's related to this non sequitur, because it really doesn't follow. Now, this is interesting. When you say red herring, the first thing that I thought of as a writer is in writing circles, when you talk about a red herring, mm -hmm. you're usually referring to something like in a mystery story, where you build up the whole mystery, and then at the end, you just throw something in there to resolve the mystery that doesn't fit with anything else in the story. And that's yeah, called a red herring. Right. It, they're, it's they're, considered sloppy writing to do that. Right. Yeah, a good way to use a red herring if you're writing fiction novel like a crime is to, when you're explaining the details that the person needs in order to solve the crime, right. and you, you don't want them to figure out the crime too early in the story, Right. you, you throw a red herring in there on purpose to sidetrack them. Right. <laughs> So you, you make it look like the butler did it. Exactly. And that fools the reader into thinking, oh, the, the butler did it. 
And then later you show, ah, oh, it was only a red herring. Right. So the butler really didn't do it. And at the end, you th- you think, oh man, I did know the evidence. I did <laughs> see where the author showed me who the real killer was, but I got fooled by the red herring. Right. So that's why you don't want that to happen when you're in an argument, when you're discussing something with somebody and they're trying to convince you of something. You don't want them to throw a red herring out there because it's going to distract you from getting to the truth. Right. So let's look at a couple of examples. Here's one. Grizzly bears can't be dangerous. They look so cute. Grizzly <laughs> bears are really cute and fuzzy, aren't they? Until they open their mouth and show those teeth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see see what I did? I, what were we talking about? We were talking about whether grizzly bears are dangerous or not. Right. What's that got to do with whether they're cute? Nothing. But, but cute bears... That's a side issue. That's right. That's an irrelevant point. And I use it because I think, oh, that has to do with whether they're dangerous or not. Yep. But it really has nothing to do with it. (laughs) Right. How about from Scripture? Here's one from Scripture. Now, here's where a red herring was used deliberately to sidetrack people. This is from, if you remember when Paul was in the book of Acts, he was being accused. He was being. He, this is where he had to appeal to Caesar, because people were trying to kill him. He had visited Jerusalem, and the Jewish leaders had decided they were going to kill Paul. Right. So he was hauled off by Roman guards and kept in prison. And the Jewish leaders then came to accuse him. Well, he noticed that they were uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, so they were evenly split. And Pharisees and Sadducees disagree as to whether there's life after death. Right. So what did he say? He said, the reason they're accusing me is because I believe in an afterlife, in, in the resurrection. Right. Now, that was a total red herring. That, that really wasn't, it was kind of an irrelevant point as to why they were there. But it started them arguing so much against each other, it got them bickering with each other, that they no longer could accuse him. And I the see. uh King Agrippa, I think it was, just chucked him out. Right. Okay. So that's a good example of how you would use a red herring if you needed to, if you were being attacked unjustly. I see. Interesting. Okay, well, this next category is a pretty common one, too. Well, I've got another red herring. Oh, okay. Let's hear it. How about this one? Spinach can't be good for me. It tastes terrible. Okay. It's yucky, right? (laughs) Spinach is yucky. I hate spinach, don't you? Actually, I've heard the counter-argument to that, that if it doesn't taste good, it must be good for you. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So taste here, taste is a red herring. Right. Right. If the discussion is about whether spinach is good for you, then to throw up the irrelevant point that it tastes terrible is meaningless. Interesting choice of words there, throwing up. (laughs) Ooh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) All right. Go ahead. Okay, here's another category of fallacies which are used pretty often. Uh, Actually, there's a few of them here that are all related. Shouting, bluster, ridicule, sophistry. Yep, yep. Now, that's used a lot today in arguments, especially on TV talk shows. Oh, absolutely. If I can shout louder than you, that means I win the argument. Right, right. Yeah, these are all irrational ways to try to win an argument. Yep. And we shouldn't be intimidated by it. Just because somebody's using a lot of bluster, a lot of, well, sophistry you mentioned, that's a good one. 
I don't know if too many people know what sophistry is. That's when you pretend to be super smart. Okay. You know, you, you're, you can't win the argument. So what do you do? You throw out a bunch of terms that you know the other person doesn't know what the definition is. I see. Make yourself sound really smart so the other person shuts up. And make the other person feel like an idiot. Exactly. And that's <laughs> one way of trying to win an argument. Okay. And ridicule. You mentioned ridicule. Boy, you see that a lot, especially in a lot of these atheist websites and podcasts and things. Man, that's all they focus on. They just ridicule people constantly. Yeah, unfortunately. And, uh, yeah, the unfortunate thing is that people buy into it. And that's the reason they do it, too, because it works. It has, it's not, doesn't have anything to do with rational argument. So it's irra- it's an irrational reason to accept or reject an argument. Right. Because the person or thing that, that is the point of the argument is being ridiculed. It's kind of an emotional, uh, appealing to people's emotions to win an argument. If yep. I can make you feel inferior or believe that you're wrong, then I win the argument. But that's not necessarily so. That that's doesn't right. mean you have the better argument. Yep. Well, we've got about four minutes left. Let's try and finish off this another logical fallacy. This one you see a lot. and In fact, you see a lot of it lately because of the global warming issue. Right. And it's called post hoc. Okay. All right. So this one is fits in the category of causal fallacies, and this one basically says that because two things are correlated, they're not necessarily cause related. Okay. So you see this also a lot in medical studies where a drug might try a drug uh, company might try to use this to argue that their drug helps people get better. So they'll they'll give people the drug and those people get better. So they claim that their drug made them get better. So this can be a post hoc fallacy, though. That's why we have to have controlled studies where there's another group of people who are not taking the medication. And some of those people, a lot of times, will get better on their own. Right. So you have to not just get people get better, but they have to get better faster than those who are not taking the drug. Right. Now, I mentioned global warming. What's one of the big strong evidences they use for global warming? They'll show this graph that carbon dioxide and temperature are rising. So in the past several decades, they'll show a graph where these are happening together and virtually identical amounts. Carbon dioxide rises and temperature is rising. So therefore, they're saying that one is causing the other. That's exactly right. They assume that carbon dioxide is causing the temperature rise, but this is a post hoc fallacy. There's correlation, but it doesn't mean there's causation. And in fact, we know that there that just the opposite is happening. The oceans, the world's oceans are a huge sink for carbon dioxide. And when temperatures rise, the ocean releases carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And when temperatures fall, the ocean absorbs carbon dioxide from the atmosphere in massive quantities. It's wow. just exactly the same kind of thing that happens with your Coca-Cola. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, you heat it up and the carbon dioxide goes out of it. Right. It bubbles and all the fizz goes out of it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Here, here's another example. Freud said that faith is wish fulfillment. Okay. Okay. Well, there might be a correlation. There might be that when people become Christians, they're happier. 
But that does there's so there's a correlation that people are happier when they become Christians. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's just wish fulfillment. That right. there's something in their head that's making them want to be happier and therefore they become Christians. Okay. So, you know, think about it. Christianity's got its downsides too. I mean, Jesus demands total surrender from us. And there are societal stigmas. You know, you're gonna lose some friends if you become a Christian. Right. So that well, shows actually, that it's not causative. If I was looking for a religion that caused me wish fulfillment, I would think I could come up with something better than something that says that I'm a sinner and I need to admit to God that I'm a sinner before he can do anything for me. Absolutely. Well, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. Join us again next Sunday at 4 p.m. for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah!